kidnapped in the back of a truck. Uh, right. Not really, but you know, I've, I've Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. Today, I am talking with Paul D. McKee. The D is important. He'll explain that in a minute. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking some time to chat with me. You're welcome. Nice to see you, Scott. So, Paul, I became aware of you because you uh, bought me a coffee. And uh, uh, off of listening to a podcast about Tyatin, uh, it seems like all roads lead to Tyatin in my world right now. It's just kind of interesting. And uh, we started chatting and you have a real interesting story. So I said, let's talk. So here we are. Nice. Um, I don't know where, where do you want me to start? Yeah. <laughs> there's, so, a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to let you, you figure out where we're starting. This is informal. Let's just okay. go. Um, let's, well, let's start with, let's start with Tyatin. Actually, yeah, let's start with Tyatin. So, um, Tyatin came up, I was listening to the podcast about, uh, Mighty Tyatin with Ed Marquand. And, um, I, you know, I was just, I, I have a nonprofit gallery and I thought, oh, well, there's a, there's a buy you a coffee tip thing. And I'm like, you know, I get it. People, you know, you need those things to happen. So, I did that, and then you got in touch with me, and the more we started talking, the connection to Titan like came up. I'm a sculptor and a painter, um, and I guess like in 2010, I had entered a, a juried show with Mighty Titan for that was a chandelier festival, and I had driven to Titan to take my chandelier over, and I remember the weather was absolutely horrible. I was you know, much younger and not thinking. So I had nothing with me except for the chandelier and my truck. And I remember like hitting the pass and I'm like, wow, it's really snowing. <laughs> and put chains on the truck five and a half hours later, got to Titan, which it's a two and a half hour drive from South <laughs> Seattle. And I remember getting there and I remember Ed calling me cause he was in Seattle and he said, Paul, you can't go back over the pass. And I'm like, well, I made it over. And he goes, no, no, it's closed. He said, you're not going anywhere. I was like, oh, he said, well, I told him to turn the heat on in the apartment. And I'm like, oh, there's an apartment? And he's like, yeah. So I delivered my chandelier um, and stayed in Titan for three days because I couldn't get back over the pass. And I remember hitting town. I mean, at the time then, Titan was, there was even less going on there. There wasn't much. The The little bakery store wasn't open past, I don't know, four or five <laughs> there, there was nothing open the convenience store and it was snowing so of course everybody had gone home there was no food there was nothing anywhere and ed's like well you're gonna have to stay do you want to help paying this show and i said sure well the crazy part about it like when you say all roads lead to titan i at the time was managing a building in pioneer square an all arts building two of the gallery owners had purchased condos uh one was one of the original purchasers um when they developed the condos um in the old packing facility. And so I met these two people that had, you know, they're like, Oh, we have condos in tight. And I'm like, wow, you do. And then, <laughs> which, cause you know, for a town I'd never heard of it. And at first thought was, was 
um, like the Grand Tetons, and you had to look it up. And you're like, oh no, it's Tyaton, Washington. And I remember a woman was there in the print shop at the time. They had a, a beautiful print making um, lab, and she and her husband had a, a condo there too. And they're like, oh well, we'll make you dinner. And then somebody else brought me a toothbrush. And a few things, you know, it was just kind of like that's kind of how it went. And then I remember standing and talking to this woman and she introduced herself as Faye Jones. And I said, oh, that's funny. Um, there's a Faye Jones in Seattle. And she she laughed because she said, well, there's another Paul McKeon in Seattle. And I said, yeah, no, there's two of us. And we're both artists. And I said, oh, is there another Faye Jones in Seattle? And she goes, no, honey, that's me. Faye Jones is a very well-known painter in Seattle <laughs> As is Robert Jones, who sadly has has passed on at this point in time. Uh, professor at the U, amazing painter. Here I am, young artist, sitting in their condo, being you know like made beautiful Manhattan's and a lovely like dinner in this little town in the middle of like what seemed like the middle of nowhere, snowed in for three days for a chandelier festival, and I'd never heard of the place before. <laughs> um, like you, it just continues. Like my partner and I bought uh, a condo this last year in the same um, in the same warehouse, and so now we have all these connections to like most of the people that you've done podcasts with, and and it's funny because this many years later, ten years later, um, I say Tyaton and and people are like, "Ooh, I'm so jealous," and I'm like, "Well, you know where Tyaton is," and they're like, "Oh yeah," and so it just gets a little more interesting. There's a ton that that's happening there, so. It's a, a fantastic kind of arts enclave place to be in as a creative person to get away from the city and kind of hang it out. Is, different perspective. Except for when it's snowing. It's no, not I don't, that far away. Oh, totally. It's two and a half hours door to door. Yeah. And it's the, the most amazing part about it, I always tell Seattle people, is the second you come off the pass, uh, you hit around, oh, I don't know, Clee Ellum, I guess, and the sun comes out. And you're like, ooh, sun in the winter. What's that? And so, like, we go over there, and you know, it. I grew up in a little tiny farm town in Kansas with a lot of snow, and so it's super reminiscent of like my childhood, where you had to put sunglasses on because you're snow blind, right? And that, I, you know, I can't tell you the last time that happened in Seattle that I was blind from the sun in the winter time. So, it's a nice respite. It's a great place to go kind of clear your mind and do your thing hang out i love it well what's funny is that we moved to wenatchee in 2017 and i'd gone to college mm -hmm. in ellensburg and i always liked ellensburg and i right. always thought oh maybe i'll stay in ellensburg maybe i'll maybe i'll live in ellensburg and I couldn't convince anybody else in my family that that was a good idea so we settled on wenatchee and i love that it's yeah, it's cold and yes there's a lot of snow but yeah it's a lot of blue sky and uh, um, there, I think there's been twice now we've gone over, and the the sun did not appear on the other side of the mountains. Oh, <laughs> and so did you, you feel, ask for your money back. Yeah, I feel cheated. Like <laughs> yeah. I get halfway to Titan, I'm like, wait, it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> we got to turn around and go home, but we don't. It's just as beautiful. So, so you, you've been involved in Titan in Titan then since 2010. Yes, and the condo now. So, how often are you are you going over? Um, Michael and I go over about once a month. Okay. Um, so my husband also is working on, oh, he did, he did some computer coding 
camps with the high school this last year, this last summer. Um, Over there? Yeah. So he's he's oh. in the tech industry and has been since he was like 13 years old. And so he wanted to figure out how to kind of get involved. So he got involved with um, uh, they they he got involved with another guy and then they developed this program and he just kind of took it over. And so he did, I want to say, four different week long classes this summer in Titan for coding. Which is That's... pretty cool because, you know, I mean, Titan is an apple town. Um, mm-hmm. It's very agriculturally driven um, and not, you know, it's not like. It's not like a big city where you have every opportunity under the sun to like do whatever you want. So his his classes were full like all okay. summer. It was great. He loved it. Is he going to do it again? Um, I believe so. I think they're doing another set of it this summer through the high school okay. again. So I kind of have to like look and see. I don't I'm not even I haven't asked him this year like how that's going to work. OK. Yeah, that was um that's very cool that they were doing that and that the, yeah. the kids were exposed and yeah, totally. We'll, we'll stay on Titan for just a little bit longer. Uh, you sure. know, Titan for 200 now. Um, <laughs> what, when you go over, when you're there, wh- what's it like for you? Is I mean, is it, is it, I don't want to say, is it like vacation, but it's, you know, what, what's a typical weekend look like? Um, you know, I think that, I think the answer to that would have been very different before the pandemic. Um, I don't know that we would have purchased the condo before the pandemic. We actually looked at the same condo for like 10 years that Ed had for a sale. He used to run a business out of it and we'd looked at it several times and I actually really liked it. And I was like, Oh, two and a half hours. That's a long way away. Are we really going to go? And then after the pandemic kicked in, you know, everybody's kind of stuck at home and, and Ed had posted that the condo was for sale. Um, and so we just decided in October, two years ago, will be three, I guess three years this year, um, to just drive over and look. And I was kind of surprised at how many people were in Titan on a Saturday now, mm-hmm. um, mingling around at box gallery or at one of the two restaurants or, or three restaurants, I should say now. Um, it is, gosh, I, like I said, I grew up in a farm town. I grew up in a town of 3000 people, 20 minutes South of Wichita in Kansas. And so the pandemic for me was kind of a reset to having to drive someplace. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't grow up in a city where it's like, oh, I can go here. I can go here. I can go here. I can catch the subway. It was a, if you're going to go to the mall, you had to plan and ask because it was a half hour drive. Kind of the same thing in Titan. We get over there and you kind of plan your time around. Okay. We need to probably stop at the grocery store in Yakima on the way, or we'll go to Kawichi, which is a little town five minutes away. Um, what you're going to do during that time is super based around whether there's two feet of snow on the ground or it's sunny. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I think kind of, kind of uses it as cause he's in tech. It's kind of a place where he doesn't have to f- focus so much as much on work and me kind of same thing. It's like, okay, where are we going to walk the dogs? What are we going to do here? How are we going to slow down a little bit? Like there's, I'm just not inundated with stuff. So it's, it's just one of those places where we go and kind of relax for the weekend. And it's becoming less and less like vacation in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, you know, I have a studio there. My closet office there. We stayed for three weeks at Christmas. Um, it was fantastic because it was just a little slower. Um, 
you know, we have friends that they'll they'll try to do a Skype call with you and they're like, wait, the Internet's not very good. And I'm like, well, you know, we are in the middle of like we're not really close to stuff. And so they always are like, why did you move there? And I'm like, for that reason, right. we're not really close to stuff. It's just a place to kind of go calm down. And I don't know, it's super refreshing, I think. And it reminds me of also of, of like small town stuff where we just continue to meet more and more people of that with like similar values in like the arts, um, like what people are doing around the, the area in art, architecture, music. Uh, it's kind of crazy, like how much is really going on in that little town. It's awesome. And, and I was totally dumbfounded when like, when I yeah. shared my story with you of how I ended up there literally yeah. you know, kidnapped in the back of a truck. Uh, right. Not really, but you know, I've, I've <laughs> I was, you know, I followed of my own free will in my car, but, you know, it might as well have thrown me in the back of the truck. It was, it was amazing. And I still, you know, like I shared with you that I'm standing in the mercantile and I'm looking and they have Filson and I'm just like, you know, my yeah. kind of Filson. <laughs> and then I watched like, this guy buys a Filson vest. And I'm just like, huh. Yeah. I would not have put Filson and Tyatin in the same sentence. Um, well, and like I told you 10, you know, 10 years ago when I was there, uh, the mercantile was was just uh, tied to made product. Um, Craig hadn't opened the mercantile side of it yet with Wilson stuff. Mm -hmm. And like the day we went and looked at the condo, I was like, there were probably 40 people in town. And I was like, whoa, there's so many people here. Wow. And, you know, Mike that works at the at the at the mercantile also, he goes, oh, no, it's kind of slow today. And I remember looking around like, wait, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's kind of busy now. And then, you know, that weekend, like I think. The next weekend we went back and had dinner at like six seventeen. It was packed. And I and huh. I'm just looking around, I'm like, wow, there's a whole lot more here. Yeah. They've they've worked so hard to get this to happen and it's actually it's happening. It's nice. Right. That there's people there. Right. And I'm I'm looking forward to this year um going and, and checking out the Grand Prix. I uh, I am too. I've actually never I've never gotten to see it. Um because during COVID it was it was shut down. Right. And then before it was like, oh, we would have driven over and find a place to stay, which because right. we used to stay um, at the uh, at El Nido um, in the past. And so now, like, I'm going to get to go over and have a place to stay and watch the whole thing and just, you know, hang out for the whole weekend and enjoy it and be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So when you're not hanging out in Tyatin, you've got a nonprofit art gallery. I do. Um, I, gosh, I, people always laugh at me cause they're like, what haven't you done in life? Like I've, I started out, uh, in design school cause I was told years ago, um, you know, that I needed to be able to make a living and going into the studio art profession, they're like, you're never going to make it, you know, in, in small town, Kansas. And so I went into the design world and was like, yeah, this is, this is really not my thing. I just, I don't know. There was something about it I couldn't kind of mesh with. And I remember taking, oh, I had a, like a, I had an alternative class I could pull on my schedule or something. And I took this, this foundation sculpture class and instantly fell in love. Um, and so changed my major to, of course, to the dismay of my parents who were terrified that I would be, you know, homeless, like eating paint out of tubes. I think, I don't know what they thought I was going to like end up doing. Um, but I like, I have, gosh, I was a professional florist for 20 years. Oh, um, 
Yeah, which actually relates even into the sculptural part of my world. Everything I've done in my life has been based around the arts in some fashion, even like running a building. Um, so the, and I know this is the long way around that story. I, we do, I do have a gallery, but the, the way I ended up with that gallery is in, I had been a display carpenter for the Bon Marche. And then of course, when it turned to Macy's, and things had changed so drastically. And in 2005, my mother told me she had breast cancer and I'm an only child. And I thought, well, I probably should pack it up and go back to Kansas. And I'd been in Seattle for 10 years and I'm like, well, you know, everything kind of pointed the right direction. I need to go do this. I'm like, I'll go home for three years and get a master's in sculpture with a teaching emphasis. Did that. Um, at the time, started dating somebody here in Seattle from Wichita, which actually worked out really nicely for grad school. Um, and then decided that like we would continue moving on. And so I moved back here in 2008 with Michael. And at the time, I needed a studio. Um, anyone in Seattle knows studio rent is very expensive, um, kind of hard to come by. And the Tashiro Kaplan building that's in Pioneer Square Actually, I was on an art walk one night on a Thursday and there was a studio available for like $600, which was, it was huge. And it was, that's unheard of. Like, you know, for somebody in a small town, $600 might be their mortgage. And I'm like, dude, for studio rent, that's good. So I remember I, I called and I got, they're like, yeah, it's all, it, it had been rented actually. And she said, but I don't believe it until there's a check on the table. And so like a week later, she called me back and she said, they fell through. Do you want this space? And I said, yeah, I'll take it. Well, a few weeks later, um, the woman who was running the entire building decided she had been there long enough and she was going to move on to different things. And so I just instantly said, uh, who do I call about your job? Because I'd actually run <laughs> an apartment building. I'd done some like random things like any artist in town had done. And so in 2009, I took a job managing all the commercial space at the Tashiro Kaplan building in Pioneer Square, which is an all arts building. And it's it in itself is run by a nonprofit organization based out of Minneapolis called Art Space. And okay. so took this on, um, managed it for quite a few years, changed a few like locations with my studio. And then one day we there was a, a basement that used to fill up with water. Like it was it had seen better days and needed some love. And it's just like, it's, you know, it's a hundred year old building in Pioneer Square. They all kind of look like that. And I remember I was in the basement talking to my boss and, and the woman's name was Catherine Vandenbrink. Um, really like brilliant jewelry maker. She was the VP for the West coast for art space at the time. And she said, Oh, I should just put somebody down for X amount of dollars. Nobody's ever going to rent this. And I got this really strange twitch in my head. And I said, I think I want this. And she's like, no, Paul, you really don't want this. And I'm like, no, I think I do. She's like, okay, well call art space and start chatting. And so I remember telling Michael, my husband that, Oh, I was looking at this thing and he's like, Oh, okay. And I don't think he realized that I might pull the trigger and like run <laughs> forward <laughs> because I came home one night and I said, so I just rented 4,000 square feet of that daylit basement for 10 years. And he, and he said, have you lost your mind? <laughs> and I'm like, I may have. I don't know, but I rented it. And the reason he said it is like, you know, here we were in the house with like animals. I think I had chickens at the time. Like I've got my own art business. I'm running a building. I'm teaching a class or two at Cornish. 
And he's like, when are you going to do this? I'm like, I didn't have any money to do this. And I said, I don't know, but we're going to make it work. And so I remember telling the neighbors, like my neighbor to my studio was um, Pratt Fine Arts Center had an offsite gallery. And the woman who ran it um, would later become one of my business partners. And one of the volunteers happened to be my neighbor like literally by our house. And she okay. said, Paul, I want to open a, an arts, like a, a gallery for art for sculptors. And we started talking and I said, you know what? So I rented this thing. I might be able <laughs> to build some space in for us. And she's like, wow, really? And I said, yeah, let's think about this. So I worked on this space for a year on my own. I couldn't afford to hire anybody. One of my friends, um, Chris Cooperator helped me hang sheetrock. Uh, like people helped me get discounts on stuff. It was insane. It just, it worked beautifully. I would, I would go to work at, at the building and then I would teach my class at Cornish and I would come home and like throw dinner down, pet the dogs, say hi to Michael and then run back and work and clean until like one or two in the morning and start over again the next morning. And in 2013, I got everything done and there were four of us that opened method gallery, which is, at the time, was not a nonprofit. It took us about three, I think, three years of self-funding um, before we actually decided we probably should do this. And so over the years now, there's two of us left. It started out, it was myself, June Sekiguchi, uh, Mary Koss, and Paula Stokes, and now it's Paula and I. And we're almost 10 years in. We show nothing but installation-based art, um, kind of specific to our space. So we ask uh, artists that we, we find people and we curate. Um, and so we ask people to take into consideration like the building, the location, maybe the age of the building, the historical properties of it. And so when we went to the, the nonprofit side of stuff, we decided that because it's kind of an underserved area, and honestly, from the get-go, we had provided this to underserved artists to start with. Mm -hmm. Um, nothing like, like I have nothing against, um, straight white men in their sixties, but over the years they've gotten a lot of stuff. So early on we decided to focus on like, Hey, can we show artists in other categories? So female, like uh, women artists, female identifying artists, LGBTQIA artists, it, we tried to really focus. And then still we had like, you know, a straight white guy would show with us. But we pushed really hard to show underserved artists in an underserved community because it's mm -hmm. not like a regular gallery show where you can just walk in and put 12 paintings up. Um, and the places for those for those artists are kind of few and far between. And it's not at anybody's fault. It's not, you know, because galleries are evil. It's because galleries need to make money mm -hmm. and they would it's much easier for them to show 12 sellable pieces than it is this giant installation piece that really doesn't have a price tag on it and it's not going to go in somebody's living room. Right. So that's why we went to the, the nonprofit side of stuff. And that's kind of how we started method gallery. Like, okay. and like I said, it's been 10 years. It's amazing. Almost. Well, you, you glossed over something. Oh, okay. You said you were standing in a basement that flooded. Oh, yes. So, so have, is this like an aquatic gallery no. where the pieces float? Or how did we solve this basement flooding issue? The, so I bossed the time. I, of course, like I said, I'm in the old part of Pioneer Square. 
there there is actually an area way outside of my part of the the space and the studio area that is underground like what you would take on the underground tour okay it's propped up with timbers it's it's insane um it leaks like a sieve and she had always said that it leaked from this giant crack in the street and it does honestly it leaks over on that side a little bit but what was in the process at the time was having the roof replaced um okay and it's like it's four thousand square feet of you know roof and it was a quite old not much had been there for years well when it filled up it was coming from this is insane there's there's a sunken part of the roof that a skylight sets in all right which is like a small in-ground pool honestly (laughs) and so the drain would back up Mm. it would fill up and run into these absolutely they're beautiful glass um like this kind of a kind of like an apiary or a like a sunroom window and it would get high enough like three feet deep and start pouring in through those so it would follow the support structure into the basement and the business above them they kept having problems with this thing filling up which is why we finally like had the roof redone and did a bunch of stuff to it but that's where most of the water was coming from um so that that kind of mitigated itself pretty quickly with that and we're lucky it did because we actually sat above the parking garage to the building next door, which is still part of the same um, company. But we realized that when MySpace would fill up with water, it meant there was about an Olympic-sized pool of water pressing on the garage wall next door, slowly nothing making its wrong. way through. Yeah, nothing. Nothing's going to mm-hmm. happen there. So that was remediated. So, no, it it's still every now and then people walk in. They're like, oh, it smells musty in here. And I'm like, yeah, a little bit. It's a basement space in historic Pioneer Square, and then it'll just yeah. stop and smell normal. So it's okay. just something we kind of got used to. But no, it's it's not underwater anymore, thankfully. Okay. <laughs> I'm lucky. <laughs> so for those of us that aren't in the art world, how what's the mechanics of a nonprofit art gallery? How, how does that work? <laughs> um, I giggle a little bit because people we've been open long enough people like they want to see our kind of business model like what we do well the four of us that started it and then the two of us still there we have always been volunteers so paula and i volunteer our entire time to curate run like facilities all of it the artists that come to us are never charged to actually show with us Um, when we, the reason we became a nonprofit is we had people that wanted to give us money. And at the time, at the time, the tax laws were different where you could donate X amount and actually write something off. Like now it's, it's way higher. Um, but at the time we needed to be able to take, you know, a donation for $500, a donation for a thousand. And truth be told, we, we tried to quit three years in. After we'd self-funded, we're like, yeah, okay, we've done this for three years. Maybe we need to stop. And our all of our friends in the community were like, no, whoa, what are you doing? You can't leave. And we're like, well, yeah, no, we need to stop this. We, you know, we're out of pocketing all of this. And they're like, why don't you have a fundraiser? That's when we became um, involved with a, an organization called Shunpike, um, which is King County's cultural arts funding organization. They're a 501c3. So really, we're an umbrellaed entity under a 501c3. 
Okay. Um, but honestly, that is how we've made it all these years. We've, we volunteer our time um, for installs. Paula does all of the, um, all the press, all the bookkeep, like all the paperwork kind of stuff that we do. I do all the physical maintenance and installation stuff on site because I built everything out. I kind of knew exactly everything worked anyway. So mm-hmm. I take care of all that. Um, we set on Fridays and then we have four awesome volunteers that sit with us on Saturdays. So we're only open on Friday and Saturday. And the rest of the time we have literally just asked people for money. And it, it if anyone has ever told you, you have to ask that it, it's impossible for me not to understand that wholly now because the first year that we asked, we did a little tiny fundraiser. I got a, like somebody, we used our friend's studio. Um, we had some food donated through some people I knew with a restaurant. I had some wine. We bought wine at Costco, I think, is what we did. I can't remember what we did. Um, and that night, we just asked people, we're like, hey, will you give us $100 a couple if that works for you? I don't know how, but we walked away that night with $15,000. Oh, okay. And the next year it was 19. The next year after that, it was 25. Are you still buying Costco wine? Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also Paula's husband's a corporate lawyer for Costco. So Costco, and they're good. They're a good local company. We're not getting a discount like for doing that. They have a good price for us to buy a a decent tasting wine to, to have at a talk, you know, whatever we, when we do a private event. Um, but that honestly, it's just been to ask and what we provided, I think people recognized that what we provided to the arts community as a whole was good enough, um, if not exceeded what needed to happen. So they, they gave us money and they've happily given us money ever since, which is fantastic. We're super thankful. Once again, I'm not an art guy. So you said earlier that the, the, Sculptures that you work with are, are doing pieces that will fit in your space. Right. Okay. No, you're fine. So what happens after they're they're done showing with these? Well, that's the that's the plight of every installation artist um, in the world. The like I I focused heavily on installation work. Um, Mary Cost did as well and public art. Paula ha- is a glass blower. Um, and has taken on installation on the side as well. And then June Sekiguchi, tons of public art and installation work. The hardest part about it is you're asked to take a space and change it into something that it's not. Um, mm-hmm. It's expensive. I'm not going to say it's not. Um, you know, my average shows would take, you know, a year of my work and anywhere from a thousand to five, eight thousand dollars worth of like materials and stuff. And, just to turn this thing out that, you know, for six weeks you have. The problem is then when you're done, you have the product of six weeks in your studio. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. what do I do with this? In my case, it was upholstered items. It was giant taxidermy like human deer forms that were hot pink with lipstick on. I, it was insane. Nobody wants a hot pink like gay deer over their bed. Nobody. They don't want it in their living room either. It scares them. So... It, you figure out like, okay, can I do this again? Like, where else am I going to show this? Um, or like in my case, from my thesis show, 
I had um, a professional photographer take images and I used those kind of as my calling card, which okay. honestly is what a, an awful lot of the artists that we've shown over the years have done. Um, yeah. It's it's a place and a chance for you to make something that you may never get the chance again to to do. So I think that's why it's so important in the community that like we, we're there. It's you, you don't get these opportunities very often. And so... Yeah. That's why we offer it. But yeah, you end up, it stacks in your garage, under your bed, in your studio. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's hard, kind of hard to do sometimes. Okay. Are you, you, what show is going on right now? Do you you have something on? Uh, Oh yeah. Um, Right now we have um, Karen Lene Rude. She's amazing. She... She happened to be um, an acquaintance of Paula and Paula really like she proposed the show to me and Karen does these amazing. Uh, and so she's doing kind of two lines of things. Um, she's working with paper that has been a donation um, from one of the paper mills. She lives up north in Port Townsend and she sews these amazing clothing out of like brown craft paper. They're ridiculously detailed they're beautiful and then at the same time she's working with she works with a a ton of recycled material and right now she she also is making these things where she tears apart printers and electronic kind of things and then builds these little kind of long vignettes that sit on a wall and it's almost looking like a shadow box of a city like town street there's like Little houses, little telephone poles, little smokestacks. It's crazy. And it's all recycled material, and you'd never know that's what they were. It's really, it's a beautiful show. So she's the one responsible for getting rid of all these printers that we've all accumulated. Over the years. <laughs> well, at least for six months few. and then stop. <laughs> a few of them, yes. Gosh. I mean, that's that's her her big, um, the background from for her work right now is the recycled part of what we leave kind of as a, as a society like what is it that you know when they mm-hmm. dig the ground up you know level of dinosaur level of seattle 2022 level of you know it's that she really focuses on kind of how and what we leave okay what's coming up later this year oh gosh you caught me off guard um this is what happens after 10 years you're like well let's look up our own website um, we, it's terrible to say that, but it actually happens. The, there's a, a awesome woman. We do, we usually do a call every year, um, for art. And there's a lovely woman in, um, Portland named Jaleesa Johnson, who is going to be doing a show with us. We're super excited about. Um, and then Ben Wright is new to the Seattle area. He is a glassblower and he is the director for Pilchuck up north. Okay. Um, so he's going to be showing with us. And then there's a trio in October that's going to be doing uh, some more work with us. That it's one that will fully take up. They're actually building in kind of this flowy, it's almost like a carpet floor that you can get under. And it's this crazy hot pink. Like it's it's hard to explain. It's amazing. I'm I'm hoping it works out this year and they can they can pull it off because it's it's a good idea. It's a really good idea. But and this is like this is the crazy part. Like when you ask about how it, does this 
how do we sustain ourselves? I always giggle because I'm like, well, we don't have any money. We don't make any money. And then most of the artwork that shows up, we've never seen. We've seen a concept sketch. Uh-huh. And we've only had a couple of like ultimate failures. And they've come through and said, oh, these were ultimate failures. And we've just kind of had to figure out how to make them work. But like these, like I don't know what these three artists are doing. I do. I have this concept sketch. But do I have photos of the work? No. It doesn't exist. So they're going to show up and do the installation. Well, before and that, you're gonna, we will you're going to walk in, in and go, huh? Yeah. Well, it's not it's not that I'm not I'm not that quite that um, giving. We we do a couple of um, like we'll do a, a, t- a little talk with them prior. And then Paul and I will do a studio visit either via Zoom or something um, ahead of time. Just we learned early on to say, hey, are you having some problems? Like, is everything OK? Like, do you, you know, do you need something? Cause there we've had a couple of artists, like one needed something and come to find out it was something that Mary had in her garage later and they oh. couldn't afford to buy it. So we've, we've learned to ask, um, with stuff like that. Okay. But yeah, so that that's, and that's for this year. Um, and then we'll set up again for next year and see how it goes. We, I mean, we probably won't be along around forever. It's a, it's a volunteer endeavor that right. it does take up an awful lot of time. And the thing about it is, you know, there's a gallery there, but in that 4,000 square feet, I also have my studio plus six studios that I rent to other people um, okay. that I have to maintain. And, you know, and it's, it's not a ton of money that I make off of that, but it provides me a studio space and it provides my tenants um, a nice studio space that you can bring like a patron into like the bathroom's mm-hmm. clean. You can make them a cup of coffee. Like it's got a, a good functioning workspace in it. So that takes up my time too. You know, okay. there's, and I still have animals and a husband in the house and now, now two houses. So, you know, it all adds up. Well, what are you working on artistically in your studio right now? You know, the, there was some, some, there was some real talk with COVID that happened. I left the, running the Teixeira Kaplan building commercial side. Um, let me think. When did COVID start? 2019. Like 17 yeah. years ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2019, I left my job in October. Uh, no, no. In 2018. Okay. I left my job in October. Um, to teach, I taught uh, woodshop at Cornish and the Art Institute, like college level freshman for uh, about 10, 12 years. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to teach woodshop out of my studio. Because there's a lot okay. of people out there that have home woodshops, like either their partner has stuff and they don't know how to use it. I'm like, I'm going to teach these people how to use home woodshop stuff. This is going to be great. I'm going to have four or five mm-hmm. students at a time. Well, I did that. And then, oh, look, February of 2019, <laughs> COVID rolls around. So all of a sudden, I didn't have a job. Um, I was making a little bit of work. I, I'll, I'll be honest and say I haven't made a lot over the last nine years. The, the space took away. It didn't take away. I allowed, I gave it a lot of my own like time and love. 
And so mm-hmm. people would ask me what I was working on. I'm like, hey, look at this wall. Look how beautifully perfect this wall is. Like the, the drywall on it's been put up perfectly and, you know, it's been mudded and taped nicely. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, dude, that's my work. That's all I've done. So I continued to make a little bit of work here and there. Um, I started to work again uh, this last year and have run across a couple of health issues. Like I threw a, a disc out of my back this summer. It kind of kept me down a little bit. And then I found out I had this like, crazy, rare, weird cancer in my ear that I'm going through treatment for right now. So I kind of keep getting set back a little bit. But the, the plan is now to head back in the studio. I'll be done with treatment in May. So this summer, oh, I've never been a big summer worker in the studio because it's beautiful in Seattle. And why else would you, you know, why not be outside? Um, so I have a feeling well, this fall only two again, maybe a week, but <laughs> the plan is to get back in the studio again um, and start a new body of work. I'm something I've never done. The, the idea of doing installation work now is it's rough. There's, there's just not much money available mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff anymore. So I need to make a little more manageable, smaller stuff. And honestly, after, after this whole like weird rare cancer thing, I think there might be some there might be some changes to my work of how I make work literally that I want to make. Like not what somebody else thinks I should make, not you okay. know, what my not what my like local art world thinks I should make, but literally just like, nope, I'm gonna make this because I want to explore these things. So sure. I, I mean I'm looking forward to it. It I just need to get back in the studio again. That's the hardest part. COVID has disrupted so many things in so many different ways and people respond to it differently, you know, and, but I think one thing, I think no matter what, I think we can all agree. It's been extremely disruptive. You know, it, it has. Um, and I'm not going to say that all of that disrupt has been negative either. The, Mm -hmm. I will say I have, I have, I have those six studios. Um, I have lost two tenants um, due to kind of pandemic related stuff. Uh, but the thing I realized was I, I worked really hard over the years to get tenants that I kind of curated for the space. I treated the space as mine and that we all shared a space. And it was like, how, how would I want to be treated? How would I want the space to look during the entire early COVID stuff. I remember I was going down and cleaning incessantly. Um, it was, that part was tough. And I remember asking my tenants at one point, I'm like, you guys, I just can't keep up with this. I need you to set up a schedule. We have to close. Um, I need you to pay rent, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, that's a hard thing to ask somebody when they're paying for a space that they can't be in except for X amount of hours a week. Not a single artist in my space kind of kicked back they all were like nope perfectly fine and so they kept the schedule we all worked together to figure out how to make it happen um they paid rent because i think they realized that the type of landlord i am i'm not making a ton of money off of them i'm i'm there kind of in it with them and that if i went away like i wasn't being given a break um Mm -hmm. on the rent and if i went away they didn't have a space anymore right so we all literally worked together and i think that's the kind of stuff that has happened with COVID, it has taught all of us to slow down ever so slightly and pay attention to stuff 
and figure out like what's important to us. Um, you know, what have we built that's good? What have we built that was terrible? I mean, there are things, you know, I, my big thing was I would go to so much stuff. I would like try to smile and keep up and go to these things. And some of it's age, um, some of it's COVID that now I'm just like, eh, I don't have to go. Like, it's fine. I need to, it's more important to stay home. Well, isn't it interesting that you, not you, just you specifically, because I'm, I'm very similar here. It's given me, it's given me permission to say no to the marginally interesting things. Yeah. And I wouldn't, you know, before I'm kind of like you, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll go. We'll do that because I need to for this reason or that reason and I'll go. And my heart wasn't into it. Sure. And so now I try to have the, I try, and this is, you know, I'm making air quotes, you know, I try. (laughs) Um, It's either hell yes or no. Right. (laughs) And uh, it's, I don't quite get that emphatic, but you know, I say no a lot more than, than I have. And there's been some good things, Yeah, you know, and you know, it's, it's, there's things that I, I miss. Don't get me wrong. Things I miss choices I make now that I, you know, I was, for example, I was going to go to a concert in Seattle and I just said, you know, I just said, I don't think I want to do that this year. I think I can skip that. And, uh, that that artist should be around for a few more years. I should be around for a few more years. I can go another time. Right. Well, and uh, I don't know. Prior to the pandemic, I when I was working so much, the studio, gallery, working in the building, teaching, it all kind of taught me. One year, I said I'm having a year of no. And so there was there's that always there's a thing in Seattle where people always laugh because they're like people like oh we should have coffee which really is, it's nice to see you. I'm never going to call you to have coffee, but it's nice to see you. And then other times it's like, no, we should really have coffee. And I remember saying yes to these things constantly. And finally I was like, I'm so exhausted. I have to learn how to say no. And so people would be like, hey, we'd really like you to show for this thing. And it would be so unmutually beneficial that I was on the losing end of like my time and and effort. And I wasn't really going to gain anything. And so I just learned it. I would just stand there and go, no. And people would look at me kind of strange. I'm like, no. And I don't, I think what has happened with COVID is I don't even, people don't look at me strangely anymore. I'm just like, yeah, no, sorry. And they're not offended. Um, I think we all just realized that our, what our priorities were in life, they, they changed when you see what, you know, kind of you look back and you're like, okay, these are the things that made me happy. I'm going to continue doing this. Which is what I'm doing now. It absolutely now, especially, you know, a friend of mine was telling me, she's like, man, you're in trouble. She's like, you throw over 50 cancer and this on the fire. And she's like, you're like this now, man, wait till you're 60, wait till you're 70. And I just giggle and I'm like, I know I'm kind of looking forward to that. Where I can just be like, yeah, I don't need to do that. That's fine. That'll, that'll move on its own and I'm going to be happy over here. I'm going to do what I love. So good at you, but I'm not going. Well, it's it's funny. So in the, my background, you'll see over my shoulder, is it? My left shoulder. You'll see a little poster on the wall. That's from the Tyatin Grand Prix. I wouldn't have thought two years ago that I'd go watch a uh, little six-horsepower race cars drive around a <laughs> town. But I'm looking forward to it this year. Like, crazy looking forward to it. I, you know? there's You know, there's things in life that, and this is one of the things where Michael and I have decided like for Titan we'll drive over. Cause like 
we'll try to kind of plan out when we're going. Like mm-hmm. it's like a little mental health, like, hey, let's go for the weekend. And then even I remember after I got my diagnosis one day, I looked at Michael and I said, I want to go to Titan this weekend. I don't want to have to think about anything. I just want to go over, take the dogs out to like Kawichi Canyon or over to Snow Mountain Ranch, which are like their land preserves. And then there's just beautiful walks. Um, plus, I don't know, this time of year, there's no rattlesnakes. So I'm way more apt to like be out there <laughs> rattlesnake free. Um, yes. But yes. It, yeah. But it's it's just one of those things where it's like, nope, I'm taking a mental health break. Whereas before mm-hmm. we didn't. And so right. it you excites me. Going. Oh, absolutely. And the stuff like the Grand Prix and Titan, I, same thing. I'm totally looking forward to it. Yeah. I think some of it too I mean, is it's kind of, it's also, it's a little safer. It's a little more outside. It's a little more, hmm. there's people around. It's not in a big town. Like this will be great. I'm ready to go. Well, you know, I, I interviewed Ed and, and he was, we were talking about the Grand Prix and he was, he was just very calm in his description of it. <laughs> do this yes and, and just his demeanor right his just his 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 public facing demeanor is very just calm and and then i go find youtube videos of it and i'm like this is nuts this would be great <laughs> yeah how did he not sell me on this <laughs> and is super calm uh, though he's he's yeah. you know he's like he's like saint patrick marching all the snakes into town instead of out of town it's awesome yeah and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching these videos of, of these guys and they're crafting these cars basically to send them to their destruction over a weekend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I've never seen it in person. I'm, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. It's going to be too. fun. That's, <laughs> and you know, I wouldn't have thought of that two years ago. Absolutely. That's not something that would have probably popped up on my radar. Oh, absolutely. So, are you, uh, you know, you live in Seattle. So what brought you to Seattle? Well, that's a whole um short story i was i was very fine in wichita kansas um my appendix had lacerated and four months later after i'd seen four different doctors i was like i don't feel good and they're like you know what you're young you work in a bar you're going to college i'm like no no something doesn't feel right well what had happened is my appendix had lacerated and i had emergency appendectomy surgery at the age of 24 oh and almost died and i remember coming out of it and they're like you had about five hours to live and i was like you know what i'm not dying in wichita kansas and so i packed up in that summer and like took a greyhound bus to tennessee uh one way and then ended up in the olympics like at like working at like one of the olympics facilities um in atlanta and then hitchhiked my way back to Wichita through people I had met, but it's still hitchhiking. My mother, my mother was mortified when I told her the true story of like all this, how I kind of got around and got back because <laughs> a friend of mine was like, Hey, I'm moving to Seattle. I don't want to be in Wichita anymore. And she was a really good friend of mine from Kansas and Wichita. And she was like, do you want to go? And I said, you know, I've never been there. And she goes, so, and I said, yeah, I think I do. Okay. And so 25, I think it's been 25 years ago now. I'm um, in 96. I rolled into Seattle like November 8th with okay. four bags, no job. She had a job. Somehow she had gotten a job. I worked, we both worked in the market um, for those first like few months. And I honestly just never left. Like there's something okay. about, there's something about the weather and the, I, 
that I absolutely love. I complain about the rain, but man, when it's not there, I complain that it's not there because I'm like, oh, I'm so dried out. I'm like, you know, I'm just getting to that point. But I love it. I've I've loved it here. It's 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 I should say it's hard for me to watch the city change so drastically over 25 years. Um, It's not that it's a bad thing. It's just it's hard for me to watch it because Seattle was a very different place in 1996 when I moved here. It was a very different place in the arts, um, in mm-hmm. like, uh, music, um, anything that was kind of community driven, it was just a very different place. You could do a lot more. And I don't mean mm-hmm. that in a way, in a bad way. I mean, it was cheaper. So you could, yeah, you could, uh, write a play and find a space to rent for, you know, $600 for the entire month. And, right. and show as many productions as possible and it would, people would come. So it was, it's hard to see it do that, but that's, I don't know. That's how I ended up here. And every time we think about leaving, I'm like, I don't know. Can I do that? Like, I don't know if I can pull it off quite yet. I'm not ready. Okay. okay. So, can- you know, coffee is the official state drink. It is. And I think, I think, did you have to take the entrance test to Seattle by showing how much coffee you could consume? <laughs> I drink I think, so much no, coffee. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> no, we bought no. an espresso. Michael bought me an espresso machine for my 50th birthday two years ago. And it was to not drink a pot of coffee. Well, yeah. Cause I just, I would drink pots of coffee. And so I got this espresso machine. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get up and like, um, make my coffee. It's not just there. Oh, mm-hmm. there's still days, you know, four espressos in. I'm like, maybe I yeah. should do the decaf one this afternoon. <laughs> it's a uh, bit much. That's that's just quackery. Yeah. So, no, um, I, I love my coffee. Don't kid yourself. So where's a great place for me to go get coffee in Seattle that I might not have heard of? Which, you, you know, you know, I'm going to give you two. So okay. in in Pioneer Square. There's this really great place on Maine called Elm Coffee Roasters. Um, they make they roast their own coffee, beautiful space. The coffee's fantastic. Like I love it. It reminds me of the old school, like when Seattle was starting out with its coffee kind of venture. Instead mm-hmm. of a cool hip, really like don't kid yourself, it's cool and hip, but it just it's really good coffee. Like I like it. Okay. Um, and then in, Pine- in uh, Columbia City, oh, I've lost where I was going to tell you. Oh, sorry. Uh, Empire uh, is down the street from us. The It has it has changed hands, I think, once. Um, it's on Angeline Street, just off of Rainier. Uh, the guy that opened it was a cyclist. And coffee and waffles and soccer were super important to him. <laughs> that was his whole livelihood. So the coffee was amazing. Um, the soccer, I think, is still pretty hefty um, in that space. With I think that some of the baristas bought it. Again, great cup of coffee. And, and there are places where you have to wait a little bit longer. Okay. So it's the okay slow that. down, do your thing. But yeah, I don't know. Those are two of my go-tos that I I go so, to a lot, honestly. So what, what beans are you using in the espresso machine at home? Uh... Honestly, it's PCC, okay. the PCC house oh. brand. It I've figured okay. out there's a combination, and I know you scoffed at the decaf part, but there's a there's a combination <laughs> of 
decaf like a light roast and a decaf dark roast that I mix okay. to do a half calf every day. Okay. It's actually pretty decent. I like it. I will share one with you that you probably haven't heard of. Um, I went over to their roastery in, um, and unfortunately my equipment, well, I can't blame my equipment. The operator, I wish I was somebody other than myself, <laughs> did not turn on the microphone. Oh. And so we had a great long conversation, uh, the two owners and I, and it's called Talking Crow. Oh, no. Coffee. Never heard of it. I'll look them up. And they're primarily um, like 95% decaf. Is, oh. That's, they make, and so they were, they made me, they made me a, an espresso. And it was absolutely, my thing with decaf isn't, it's just not, I have really never found that many decafs that were palatable to me. Like, correct. Not noticeably deficient. And I'm not a coffee snob. I don't mean to sound like that, but, um, cause if truth be told, I drink my Keurig coffee. Let's let's, I can't, I can't make fun of anybody <laughs> if I'm admitting to that. And my, my wife brought home Folgers decaf Keurig K cups. And I'm like, I just, I should just end my life right now because there's no nothing more humiliating. And honestly, if I and I'm saying this and I'll I will publish it, it was actually maybe the best decaf out of that Keurig I've ever had. Nice. And that's just sad. Um, but this Talking Crow, they're they're uh, they air roast their coffee. Their decaf is is amazing. It was I was shocked. I I actually bought some and and I've enjoyed it at my house. Do so they do they decaffeinate with water? Looking for a good decaf. Or do you know? They use the Swiss water. Yeah, um, that's beans out of Vancouver. That's a big that's a big mm-hmm. difference because like the coffee that I grew up at decaf um, would have been like chemically processed, and it did mm-hmm. it made it taste terrible. And especially, yep. I was and I was a barista for a while. Like I said, there's not much I haven't done. Um, so I worked at an awesome little place called Joe Bar on Capitol Hill that's still there, and that I remember that our decaf coffee was terrible, but it just. And the guy that taught me to barista, he's like, oh, that's, you know, that's the, that's awful. You don't, that's something you don't ever put together with espresso. And I'm like, but there are people that really can't handle the the caffeine part of it. So I've always, and I think, I think the PCC one is water, Swiss water. It's, but you're right. Like decaf is tough, but I'm also Mm -hmm. one of those people that for a while to have decaf coffee, like my grandparents owned a diner. And so I grew up with a percolator of coffee next door constantly. It just, I think they just added more water to it with more beans. I don't think they ever washed it. I don't think it was beans. It was just pre-ground. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like yeah. it was Folgers yeah. like straight out of the, yeah. but I don't think they ever, I think they just add, dumped it and added more. Um, <laughs> but so Michael would laugh at me because I would get like the taster's choice, like, you know, decaf, like crystal ones. He's like, can you drink that crap? And I'm like, it's so good. It tastes like it tastes oh like truck stop coffee. I, I love truck stop coffee. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh it's, it's familiar, I think, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Why I like it. I don't know that it actually tastes good. No, it doesn't. Let's <laughs> let's be honest with each other, but there's a familiarity to it. You know, it's like okay. So yeah, those so, are those are my things. When you're not running a nonprofit gallery, what do you and you're not going over to Tyatin? Yep. What do you like to do in the greater Seattle area? I will tell you the, we are fortunate to have a place in Columbia city on a corner. I have a space for a garden. Um, Hmm. The floral part of me, my grandmother was a a huge flower grower. My grand, my mom's parents were 
depression era. Um, they were older when I, they were in their seventies when I was born. So like their thing was to grow everything, can stuff. My grandmother grew flowers, vegetables. It, it's one of those things. I absolutely love to spend time like that in the yard. I can work 12 hours and come home and work in the yard for six and not even realize it. Okay. And it's the same kind of thing in the studio. I have a deal. I'm kind of a tinkerer. Like I love if somebody's like, Hey, can you, can you do this thing? And I'm like, yeah. And so I'll, it, it doesn't feel like work to me. I can literally just kind of tinker around and like make the stuff I have or need, or I don't know. It's, it's stuff that keeps me busy with my hands. Other than that, there's a lot of like Michael and I go to Seward park. Um, we're fortunate to have that park, you know, within 10 minutes of our house mm-hmm. drive down and That's all of a sudden, park. yeah, you're in an old growth forest and the dogs love it. You know, it's like getting away. The water's right there. And so that's just, it's a lot of, if I can stay active, moving outdoors, it's probably one of my favorite things. Okay. Or tinkering on well, something. Well, like get out of jail free question. This is always, I say this every episode. Okay. What didn't I ask you that I should have? Oh gosh, I don't know. I, I don't know that you didn't ask me anything incorrectly. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot there that I don't know, even in an hour, yeah. it's pretty hard to toss out there. I, I do a lot of stuff. I'm, I don't know. I, I pride myself into being that guy that can teach you how to use a table saw and not cut your hand off. So do you have all 10, you know, I do. And thumbs? Um, okay. I almost lost my thumb two, three or four years ago. Uh-huh. I kept telling my eye doctor that my glasses, I had to go to bifocals a few years uh-huh. ago. And I kept saying, I feel like these are the wrong distance for the table saw. And she said, well, where's the table saw? And I put my hands out and, you know, trying to show her. And she goes, yeah, no, you're right. Well, I went to move a board and I probably, like Michael tells me, I was stupid to not use a push stick. But it was far away from the blade. Well, it wasn't. And so I basically just oh. touched the blade with my thumb. That is the closest thing I've ever come. And I've never had a student uh, get hurt. Okay. I'm I'm kind of a pushy shop teacher. Like, my big thing has always been, that tool will kill you. Have some respect. Yeah. Like, don't be scared yeah. of it, but have some respect. A friend of mine and I were talking about this last night. I said, I always looked at the, my female students were almost always the best shop people because they had some serious like respect for a tool, but then they took the time to like make it do what it needed to do. And I could always find usually the one, it was usually a woman in the class in my, as my freshman, their eyes were the size of like saucers, just, you know, cause they're like, uh, uh, there's no way. And I'm like, no, no, come up here with me. You're terrified. You're going to do the first like cut of the class. And they're just like, no, no, no. Okay. And I'm like, no, you'll do great at this. Let's do it. So, nope. I they they have their all their digits. I have all mine. Super fortunate. But like a like an old guy told me years ago that was a, a he was a carpenter um, in like visual art in the visual stuff like for Macy's um, for the Bond. And he said, man, the second you lose respect for that tool, it will bite you. He said, and it's when you'll get hurt when you right. forget. You're doing something repetitive or so I've always just kind of kept that in mind. It's like pride myself in the, no, you need to have this on. 
Michael laughs. Well, and at that's me. why you drink all the coffee is to stay. Alive. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can overdo the coffee and be in the table saw oh, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's a very, very true statement, but no, I have them well, all. Where can people, where can people find out more about the gallery? They want to look it up. So there's two places you can go. You can either go to methodgallery.com, which will take you straight there. Um, or if you want to know a little bit more information about the space that Method is housed in, it's called Project 106. And you can go to project-106.com. And it will take you to Method. It will take you to my personal page. Um, and I think one of my, I can't remember what it is. Not right now. Okay. But yeah, well, look we'll, us we'll up. Put those, we'll put those in the show notes. Please do. Come visit. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. And I, this is a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward. Well, our paths will cross in June for sure. Absolutely. Thank you um, for having me. Yeah. And uh, look forward to, I'll come over. I'm going to come over and check out the gallery too. I want to get next. I'm building a pretty long, extensive list of things to do next time I come to Seattle. I might have to stay for a few days, which is which will be fine. That's not a bad thing. Um, yeah, call. No. I'll meet you at the gallery. Uh, I, I will do that. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Nice to talk to you. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.